Well, turn with me, if you will, uh, first to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, put a finger there. That will be uh, our, that will be our first passage. But if you're also able to put a finger in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, that will be our main passage this morning. Uh, first, just a few verses out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses three and four. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And now turn with me, if you will, to First Chronicles chapter 21. That will be our main passage this morning, First Chronicles uh, 21. We'll just start with the first six verses uh, at this point. First Chronicles 21. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my lord, the king, all of them, my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? And why should it cause be the cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab, so Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. This ends the reading of God's word at this point. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Our gracious Father, you know our hearts, you know our minds, and how we struggle to believe your words of comfort, and how we're quicker to believe the enemy's lies than to believe your truth. And if we are honest with ourselves, your grace sometimes sounds foreign to our selfishness. Beyond the realm of possible, your grace, simply put, sounds too good to be true. But we ask that you would help us not to judge you as if we were the standard, but that we would judge our doubts according to your word. Open our eyes, our hearts, our minds to just how high and inexhaustible your grace truly is. Do this as we open your word together, we pray. Amen. Well, the Bible talks a lot about sacrifices, and yet not all sacrifices are the same. Some uh, are thank offerings and praises. These are free will offerings, but there are other kinds of sacrifices. There are guilt offerings meant to atone for sin. And these guilt offerings function as substitutes. They're, they're paying a debt. The sacrifice is given in the place of the life of the worshiper. 
And God is not obligated to accept a sacrifice. That there are those who think that that sacrifices uh, are something like putting a coin in a vending machine or, or finding the right key for a lock and turning it. That it just works. But that's not the case with sacrifices. First, God has strict requirements on offerings. They were to be impure, spotless, uh, unblemished. If they were impure, if they were blemished, if they were inadequate, they were not accepted. But God also has requirements for the one offering the sacrifice. It must not be perfunctory, and it can't be presumptuous. Guilt offerings were not simply a method of, of purchasing sin credits so that you could do what you want and not worry about the consequences. Sacrifices are only accepted by God when offered with, a, with true remorse, true humility, without sincere repentance. Sacrifices are rejected. And there are a few key points in Israel's history, in God's history with his people, that he made a visible sign of his acceptance of sacrifices so that his people would know that what they had offered had been received and that their sins had been forgiven. For example, when Israel was in the wilderness and Aaron was being set aside and ordained to the office of high priest, God consumed the sacrifice he offered with fire from heaven so that Israel would know that Aaron was indeed God's choice and that they should honor and respect his office. The same thing happened when Solomon dedicated the temple. Fire from heaven came down and consumed the sacrifice, thus showing that this was indeed God's house that he had set aside for his worship. It happened when Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal uh, to a contest on Mount Car uh, uh, with, with the two sacrifices and asking who indeed were the true prophets of God and which God was the true God. And, and God consumed Elijah's sacrifice with fire. But that didn't happen every time sacrifices were offered. But there were certain times when the people needed to know beyond a doubt that their sacrifice had been accepted. Our passage this morning tells of one of those times, and that's what we want to look at today, which is Easter. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, if I hear one more Easter sermon out of First Chronicles, I'm going to scream. Or maybe not. Maybe your thoughts are more along the lines of, what does First Chronicles have to do with the resurrection? Well, for the last several years, each Easter, I have been pausing to meditate upon something the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And I, I posed the question a few years back, where exactly does the Old Testament say that the Messiah would be raised from the dead on the third day? And the funny thing is, if you look through the Old Testament, you will not find one messianic prophecy that says this. What you will find is the simple reality that the third day was the only possible day of resurrection, if you know your Old Testament. And so over the last few years, we've looked at, at Esther. 
We've looked at the sacrifice of Isaac. We've looked at the life of Joseph. We've looked at the sacrificial system in Leviticus. And we've looked at Saul's conspiracy to kill David. And in each of these stories, we have seen that if a life is going to be restored, it will be on the third day. But more than that, in each of these passages, we have, we have seen something about why Jesus had to die and rise again. Because that's the important question, one that we want to consider, uh, continue to consider this year as we look at First Chronicles 21. And my prayer is that as we do, we will see that, it, that when God accepts a sacrifice, death is reversed on the third day. When God accepts a sacrifice, death is reversed on the third day. That's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. We read that Satan incited David to number Israel. And we think, so what's the big deal? It's just a census. Our, our country is doing a census this year. It does one every 10 years. Is our country uh, in gross sin every 10 years when it has a census? Didn't God order censuses at some points in history? Uh, we see that in Numbers 1 and again in Numbers 26. And so we have to accept that it's not the census itself that's the problem. And it makes us ask, what is the problem in our passage? And as you read on, you realize that what David was really interested in was the number of his soldiers. He wanted to know how big his army was. And we don't know exactly why, but there's two easy possible reasons. It could be that he was feeling scared and he wanted reassurance that he had enough troops or it could be that he was feeling on top of the world and he wanted to know just how big his army was so that he could brag about it. And his army was big. He had over one and a half million soldiers. And that was a lot for his day. And that's a lot for any day. The U.S. has less than that today in active service. Either way, whatever the reason, David was looking to take comfort in the size of his army rather than the strength of his God. And that is something that God has forbidden. And even Joab saw a problem with this. And Joab, uh, how shall we say this, was not the strictest of David's chiefs when it came to ethics. He was probably the most flexible on ethics. David was arrogant and proud in the census. And that was his problem. He was not trusting God. He was trusting his own strength, and he was boasting in that strength. His trust was in his own power and not God's. It's a sin I know all too well, to look for comfort in my own strength and not the strength of my God. So let's read on. Let's read verses 7 through 13. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord God, choose what you will, either three days of famine or three months of devastation by your foes, while the sword of your enemies overtake you, 
or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. God was angry. He came against Israel and he sent Gad the prophet to confront King David in his arrogance. And David knew immediately that he had sinned. And he repented. He asked for mercy. But God said there would be consequences and David would have to choose what those consequences were. Don't you hate it when parents do that? One of the worst things a child ever has to do is pick his or her own consequence. And yet that's what God made David do. You pick, you have three choices. He gave him three options. And with God, it's, it's always three, isn't it? And the first was three years of famine. Three years, that's a long time. But maybe with rationing and scrimping, maybe they could survive it. The second option was three months of war, but not the kind of war you expect with one and a half million soldiers. They would spend three years, I sorry, three months running from their enemies. It would be three months of one failed military campaign after another. And still yet, maybe David would be tempted to think, with a million and a half soldiers, how bad could it really be? The last option was three days of pestilence. There's no defense here. No planning, no scrimping, no rationing will stave off an infection. All the soldiers in the world can't fight a disease. Not even social distancing would be of help if this was what David chose. So what would you choose? What would be your choice? David chose pestilence, three days of pestilence, and his reason is intriguing. He preferred to fall into the hands of his God, whom he trusted and whom he knew, rather than into the hands of his enemies. And this is how we know David's repentance is genuine. When we are only giving lip service to repentance, we, we run from God. When our repentance is genuine, we run to him. David's sin was that he had refused to put his trust in God and he trusted himself. In his repentance, he completely changes course. He chooses the one option that placed no confidence in what he could do. He, placed, he chose the one option that wholly surrendered to the Lord. Repentance is so much more than the words we speak. It's the posture that accompanies those words. Repentance is seen far more than it's heard. And so it must be evaluated by the fruit it bears, not the words it speaks. And David's repentance is extremely visible in his choice. Three days of pestilence it would be. Three days of death. And so let us read about that uh, in verses 14 through 27. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel 
to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. And in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. And David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave the command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil, but these sheep, what have they done? Please, let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to, David, to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. But now Ornan was threshing wheat, and he turned and he saw the angel. And his four sons who were with him hid themselves. And as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it, and let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings, and the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. The king David said to Ornan, No but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of the burnt offering. And then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. By the end of those three days, the toll would be 70,000 lives. 70,000 lives in three days. For perspective, that's more than we lost in the entire Vietnam War. It's almost three times as many as we lost in the Revolutionary War. It's twice what we lost in the Korean War. The price of David's sin was paid in blood. And did you notice it said 70,000 men, echoing his census of soldiers. If David was going to take comfort in how many men he had ready to fight, the Lord was going to take those men away from him. The way those three days are described is startling. God's angels is walking through Israel with a drawn sword. It echoes uh, what we saw in Exodus with the angel of death marching through Egypt on that spring night of the first Passover, taking all the firstborn of the Egyptians. And as the angel approached the threshing floor, owned by a man named Ornan, the Lord ordered the angel to stop. And this property owned by Ornan turns out to be a very important little piece of land. 
the hand of death had been stayed there on the third day well, once before on this very spot. Uh, a thousand years earlier, it was at this exact spot that Abraham had brought Isaac to offer him up as a sacrifice in Genesis 22. It's also the future site of the temple. And as David looked at the angel standing there with, with the sword drawn, he, he cries out to God, was it not I who gave the command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord, my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague fall on these people. And here's true repentance. He accepts whatever the consequences are. He lets the price fall on him. And then as he commanded Abraham years before, God tells David, build an altar on this site. And so David asks Ornan to sell him the land. And Ornan argues and, and he offers to, to give it to the king, his gift, along with the animals and the wood for the sacrifice and even wheat and grain. But David would have none of that. He understood what it would mean to allow Ornan to bear the cost, that that's not right. This, this isn't Ornan's problem. So David demand that he be allowed to pay the full price for the land. And then he built the altar and he presented his offerings to God. But he did not light the fire. He waited to see if God would accept his sacrifice and mark the debt paid in full. The people were dying by the thousands this was one of those times when they needed to know, to know if God accepted the sacrifice. And God's answer came as it had with Aaron in the form of fire from heaven that consumed the offerings. And then he commanded the angel to sheathe his sword. And David knew he knew that death had passed. That on the third day, life was restored. That the debt had been paid. And that God's wrath was satisfied. Before we move on, we need to let the sad reality sink in. 70,000 people died for the sin of one man. This is tragic. As David would so eloquently put it in verse 17, the sheep died for the sin of the shepherd. And it strikes us not just as sad, but as unjust. Is it fair that many should die for the sin of one man? How could God allow such a thing? And yet it's not the first time something like this has happened. In fact, this is how the world began. When Adam took that forbidden fruit, all those who were under him came under a sentence of death. All humanity, you and me. David was simply repeating a tragic pattern. And it's not unjust. This is how reality works. We are bound together. We reap the benefits when our leaders do well and we bear the consequences when they fail. But what if, 
What if there was a leader, a king, who didn't bring tragedy and death upon his people? What if there was a king who didn't make them die for his sin? What if there was a king who was willing to die for the sins of his people? The parallels to to Jesus' last few days and our passage are striking, and yet with a few dramatic differences. Jesus used the language David used, but with an important twist. No longer would it be the, the sheep who would die for the shepherd. Jesus says that he is the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. When the rulers of Jerusalem conspired to kill Jesus, they even said it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. With David, we have the people dying for the sins of their king. But with Jesus, we have something far better. We have a sinless king who is willing to die for the sins of his people. And as Jesus was laid in the tomb, the questions that had to be asked were questions like, will God allow death to reign or will its time be brought to a close? Will the price he paid be accepted? And if so, how will we know? And yet, if they knew their scriptures, if they knew First Chronicles 21 and they saw the parallels, they, they would know the answers. If salvation is God's goal, God will only allow death to reign for three days. If he accepts the price paid, he will make it obvious with an unmistakable sign. And so as dawn approached on the third day, the scriptures would have the people waiting eagerly in expectation, waiting for death to be reversed, waiting for a sign that the debt had been paid, waiting for proof that sin and death would not win. As the disciples came to that tomb, they, like David before them, found angels, but neither was holding a sword. They bore good news. The angels asked, why do you seek the living among the dead? Jesus was risen. Proof positive that the debt had been paid, that the sword of death had been stayed. Could it be any other way? Is this not what the scriptures foretold? Is this not what 1 Chronicles 21 required? This is the resurrection pattern. This is what Paul meant when he said that Jesus Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I'd like to make three reflections on our passage before we close this morning. You will regularly be tempted to trust your own strength. It comes out in language like this. I don't know if I can do this. We look at our circumstances and we try to figure out if we can see a way through it. And when we can't, we're tempted to despair. That temptation is universal. You are not unique. We all face it. It's reality. The question is, what do you do when it happens? Learn the lesson from David. Name your sin for what it is and confess it to God and run to him, not from him. Fall 
into the arms of your Savior. Ask God for the faith to trust that wherever he leads is better than anything apart from him. Surrender. It's the only way of life, even if it means death, because with our God, death can't last forever. It must surrender us into our Savior's loving arms. So beware the temptation to trust your own strength. The second thing I want to point out from our passage is is that temptation to try and help pay your own debt. You must resist this. When David came to the threshing floor, Ornan tried to ease the burden of the king and contribute his share. And we do this all the time with God. Sometimes we think our good works deserve some reward. We think that we are worthy of God's blessing and that he owes us something because of all that we have done for him. It sounds like this. How can God let me suffer after all I've done for him? Or sometimes we take the opposite posture, but it's the same sin. Sometimes we try to help God by punishing ourselves when we fail. We think that if we can just make ourselves miserable enough for a while, God will accept us back into the fold. Until then, we keep him at arm's length. We try and help pay the debt. It's then that we need to hear David's words on the lips of our Savior. You need to hear Jesus say to you, no, but I will buy you for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings what cost me nothing. We must allow Jesus to pay it all. The Bible is clear that it's all or nothing. And if we try to contribute anything, Jesus benefits us nothing. Either he pays the debt in full or we must pay the debt in full. He never splits the bill. And so resist the temptation to try to help God and contribute your own goodness. And then finally, give thanks that the debt has been paid. The response that God wants is is not an attempt to help pay the debt, but simple gratitude that he has paid it for you. The resurrection of Jesus is the Father's statement that he has accepted Jesus' life in your place. The resurrection is meant to comfort all God's children that, that death shall not have the final word. How could you respond with anything other than thankful praise? Is it any wonder then that that our Lord would combine a picture of his death with an act of thanksgiving? The church has long called the Lord's Supper the Eucharist, meaning the thanksgiving. It calls it that because Jesus, when he instituted that meal at that Passover, gave thanks and told his disciples to do the same whenever they commemorate his death and resurrection. If we were together this morning, if we weren't, Uh, forced at home through this uh, outbreak and this pandemic, we would be breaking bread together and giving thanks. But just because we are unable to meet doesn't mean we can't be thankful. Every Sunday, every Sunday, we remember that our Lord was willing to give his life in order to save us. We remember that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so every Sunday we give thanks and praise to our wonderful King. May his name be praised forever. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, risen Savior, indwelling Spirit, we thank you that we have a King who is willing to suffer for his people. We thank you that we know his sacrifice has been accepted, that our debts have been marked, paid in full. Help us, we pray, to guard against the temptation to trust our own strength. Help us to surrender into your arms. May we never try and help pay our debt, but trust that we have all we need in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Help our response to simply be that of gratitude, of joy, and of praise. Help us to respond with confidence in what Jesus has done. Help us to learn to always run to him and never from him. And we thank you for our time together this morning. And as we go this morning, we ask that the God of peace, who brought up again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, that you would equip us with every good thing that we may do your will, working in us that which is pleasing in your sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.